don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello everyone and welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Excitement levels about today's guest are at an all-time high. The leaderboard at Better Watch Out. Hey Murph. Hey Owen, how's it going? To say Kit Duvall has an interesting life story is about a million miles off doing it justice. She grew up in Birmingham to an Irish mother and a father from St. Kitts in the West Indies in a home where money was scarce and food even scarcer. She was raised a Jehovah's Witness, spending most of her childhood living in fear of Armageddon. She left home pretty much as soon as she could, encountered a lot of racism in her attempts to get a job before eventually building a career for herself in family law and child social services. Only began writing seriously in her 40s, making her breakthrough with My Name is Leon, which won the Irish Novel of the Year Award in 2017. And now she's written a remarkable memoir without warning and only sometimes scenes from an unpredictable childhood. You know those autobiographies you get to the end of and you're left wondering, why did they leave all the interesting stuff out? <laughs> I mean, we've all read bad memoirs, Berf, uh, sometimes more than we would, we would care to admit. Well, this is not one of those autobiographies. This is class. She pours everything out there. The attitude of her Irish grandmother towards her mixed race grandchildren, Kit's challenges in finding her own identity as she gets older. And she does all this with a lot of warmth, a lot of humour. But I'd have to say even the funny stuff is laced with deeper meaning and context. So at one point, she describes the sort of conversations that her mum and her grandmother would have with each other about how to make food, how to make food stretch that bit further. Her grand apparently was the mistress of the stretch, according to Kit. So stuff like, you'll never have a stale loaf if you sprinkle it with a little water and heat it through, Sheila. And the catch-all, mash it up and put it in with the potatoes, Sheila. (laughs) I think many of us have heard versions of that conversation over the years, but, you know, there's a real poignancy here because, well, firstly, Sheila really does need to make the food stretch for her family. And as well as that, the story is presented as a rare example of a normal conversation between the mother and the grandmother. More more often, Mm. you're hearing about the tension caused by Sheila marrying a black man and having mixed race children. And so this the book is great. Kit's life is extraordinary. And she's going to be on today to share her life story with you guys, the second captain's listeners. Murphy should also mention the brilliant short story by Kit Duvall before we hear from her, because this immediately, yeah. a, a sports related one, this gets her off on the right footing when it comes to her sporting pedigree. Yeah. Uh, Being Various is a collection of uh, new Irish short stories edited by the Northern Irish writer Lucy Caldwell that was released in 2019. It might be on many of your bookshelves at home, but... Uh, Kit has a story in that collection called May the Best Man Win. It's about a charismatic Irishman who sets up a television in a pub populated almost entirely by West Indian immigrants in Birmingham to watch the Muhammad Ali-Trevor Burbick world heavyweight title fight in 1981. Ali's last fight, as it turned out. Uh, The King, as our Irish boxing fan is called. Uh, Well, his straightforward manner, his good-natured naivete beguiles the white Irish barmaid Patty who has a kid with the drunkest man in the pub and prompts her to think about her old Irish teacher the life back in Ireland she had to leave but it's a beautiful Mm. story Uh, and it also hints at a more than passing interest in sport which might augur well for Kit in the next hour Well tell us what does Kit Duvall have to do then to become the second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person of 2022 I could have been a contender I could have been somebody (laughs) 
Okay, so to become the top non-sports person, sports person of 2022, our guest each week has to provide me, or not anyone else, just me, with their all-time sporting highlight, and then I will assign them a sports person that I feel most closely resembles them and their sporting achievements before I assign them a score out of 100. And then right is in last place, let's not butter it up, on 72 points, with just two shows to go this series. So Fiona Shaw is our current leader with 85 points. She remains quietly confident that she's done enough. She's been tweeting about it all week. Has she? No, of course she hasn't done. She's a Hollywood superstar. But the question I have for her is, has she peaked too soon? Mm. 85 would be enough to win most years, but we've already seen Nick Hornby soar like an eagle to 83 points before an Icarus-style fall from grace. So, has Kit Deval timed her run perfectly this season? We shall see. Let us see indeed if that leaderboard gets shaken up by close of business today. As always, we've got some brilliant music to share too, starting with something from an album that had a major impact on a young Kit Duvall when she left home at 16. She went out and bought the incredible Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. And this is Higher Ground. What an unbelievable tune that is. Stevie Wonder and Higher Ground, a song that has a special place in the heart of today's guest on Second Captain Saturday. Author of the brilliant novel My Name is Leon, she was recently elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, an honour reserved for the best writers at work today. Just last month, she released a stunning memoir without warning and only sometimes scenes from an unpredictable childhood. And today you're going to hear all about her Rafa Nadal obsession, which didn't quite make the final edit for the memoir. Kit Duvall, you're very welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Hello, it's great to be here. We'll get to Nadal a little bit later on, but we are going to start with sport. When you were young, when you were growing up, cricket, I believe, is quite big in the house. Very big. My father played cricket for his island in the West Indies, St. Kitts. He was obsessed with it all summer long. We would watch it live. We'd have to go and watch him. He used to play at the Warwickshire ground in England. Um, My mother was a great knitter and she used to knit all the cricket whites, the cricket jumpers (laughs) for the whole team. It was the cricket team of the transport executive for the West Midlands. And just so happens they were all black on the team, except for one Chinese guy who was actually West Indian, the Chinese West Indian. 
Um, and my father just used to, every, everything he spoke about was in cricket terms. You know, uh, he'd talk about being bowled out if you had to do something or <laughs> I'll bowl you out or <laughs> leg before wicket. We knew all the terms <laughs> and we had to know all the cricket players because he'd talk about them all the time. Gary Sobers this, Ibadullah that. And we'd be like, God, it's so boring because is there a drier sport? I could, you, it's so boring and it's so English. Oh no, you know, although he obviously was West Indian. We'd like to know how good your dad actually was at cricket because he, he had a very impressive nickname. He's got several, yeah. So he, he was called Lofty because he was six foot five. He was called Kid Mirror. The Rock. The Apparently rock. The, the, yeah, you the, couldn't bowl past this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they called him The Rock because he would just stand there and stand there and stand there. And of course, he's a big guy for a little, a small pair of wickets. Not that he could stand in front of it, but he was very good. And he was famous for his sixes and fours. We had to hear all about it, obviously. And we'd be like, yeah, Dad, that's so interesting. And this is going back to his days in St. Kitts in the West Indies, obviously. He was a big cricket player over there. Yeah, over there and over here, you know, he, he played every every Sunday, every Saturday, every Sunday and during the week. And he would, you know, he was the captain of his team. So living in Birmingham as he was, uh, married, bringing up a kid in Birmingham. I think it's fair to say, though, his heart was always back home. At least a part of his heart was always in St. Kitts. I'd say 92% was at home in St. Kitts. He just longed to go back there. He only came over, as, as lots of immigrants do, you know, you come home, you come to England with the intention, make some money because we're so poor, go home with the money and have, you know, reclaim your life amongst your own people. And certainly that was my grandmother's intention as well when she came from Wexford. Um, so my dad was just like, any day now, I'll go home. Any day now, I'll go home. And he just lived for going back to the West Indies. It just didn't work out for him. Yeah, it is really something that I think whether you're Irish or from a West Indian background or whatever, a lot of people can relate to what you're saying there. This uh, immigrant experience where there's always a thought that you're going to go back, yeah. how, how realistic it is. And there's also this idealised version of what you'll be going back to, I think, as well. That was it for my dad. So when I was 14, he saved up enough money to go home to the West Indies and um, he got a six month ticket. You know, he was just dreaming of it. He made all these preparations he came back in two weeks. First comment, it was too hot. And we're like, yeah, Dad, it's the West Indies. Even we could have told you it's going to be hot. He didn't like the food. He didn't like, he said the telly was rubbish. He missed Morecambe and Wise. He actually missed us, which I think he never expected to. And he didn't go back. And it broke his heart, actually. Because don't forget, all his friends are in the UK anyway. They're all in England. So it wasn't the 1955 same kits that he left it was you know it was nearly 1980 and he was just like lost without that dream i'm just wondering whether his desire to get home and his desire to be seen to be a success when he gets home i wonder was that in some way tied to the his prowess at cricket this idea that he wasn't just a returning sort of a, a man who's done well for himself but also he was a figure to be lauded before he left through cricket. And I wonder if that had some sort of an impact on how desperately he wanted to return to, to St. Kitts. Definitely. My father's psyche was always one of being noticed and being seen. He had to be somebody. He was uh, 
the illegitimate child of a woman who had an affair with my black nana, who, as I call her in, in the book, she had an affair with a married man. So she had two children out of wedlock and he, his, my father's father didn't acknowledge these two children until my father became good at cricket. And when he became good at cricket and played for the island, then this guy steps up and goes, actually, you know, that's my son. Wow. And so my father always equated prowess at sports or mattering with, you know, my father will love me, which is the oldest story in all of time, being seen by your father, being acknowledged by your father. So he had a desire that he would never have understood. You know, he'd never have articulated it in that way. But we knew, reading between the lines, that this was a huge thing. The captaincy, the being the somebody, the man they couldn't get out, the, you know, the conquering hero. It was all tied up with basically wanting to be loved. That obsession that he had, Kit, with saving up money, going back, impressing people back home, what, how did that impact on your own childhood, that of you and your siblings? Well, it meant that emotionally he wasn't there. He wasn't available to us. But physically he wasn't there because he was working all the time. And also he would not spend any money on his children or on anything because he was saving up to go home. He wanted to buy a house in the West Indies. So he was unavailable materially and, you know, emotionally and everything. He was just like an absence, an absent father, which meant that my mother had like 25 jobs. She was a nursing auxiliary. She looked after children. She worked in a supermarket. She cleaned the laundrette. She cleaned other people's houses. She did not have two minutes to herself because everything she earned had to fight, feed five children and him and him. She had to feed him out of her own money. I mean, there was, you could never, ever depend on having a dinner. That was, it happened. You know, sometimes you did have one, but you didn't know you were going to have a dinner. You couldn't rely on it. Uh, we had didn't have the right clothes. We didn't have the right food or any food very often. Um, it was really, really tough. You know, when I remember reading <laughs> Angela's Ashes, I'm laughing now. I remember reading Angela's Ashes and there's a whole scene in that about the little boy stealing a potato and the joy of the potato. I burst out laughing. I could not believe how accurately... He described what it's like to be hungry. And unless you've been hungry, not a day, not a week, but years hungry, you just can't understand. You, you can't explain to someone how profound it is to have hot food and the, the joy and excitement. It's, it's, it's beautiful. You know, it's fantastic and it's terribly sad. Um, so it had a massive, massive impact on all of us, the five of us. You mentioned Angela's ashes, but... When you write about the times that there is food in the house, your descriptions are so evocative. Like the time, you know, when your mum brings home fish and chips or West Indian curries in the house. Like you say it's indescribable, but you do a pretty good job of, of describing it. It was, you know, it, it was fantastic when we got, it was exciting when we got fed. You know, it was like some people might imagine Christmases, but this was just like Tuesday and we were going to have hot food because... Most of the time, we just had bread and margarine or whatever. Anyway, it'd be cold. It wouldn't be cooked. So to have hot food was a, a real event. And, it, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was write a misery memoir where people are going, Jesus, I can't read this. It's too depressing. Because we didn't, I mean, we thought it was grim, but we laughed every day. We, we t If we weren't taking the piss out of one of them, it was the other one. We just... Uh, you know, we laughed, we made the most of it, we 
complained and the, in the complaining as lots of Irish people do there's a lot of humor in complaining mm. you know yeah. I, I used to love that we'd, we'd talk about hunger we'd look at the Beano you know like the Beano comic and they used to there's a boy who used to eat apples in the Beano and he never ate the whole apple I'd be like what's he doing eat the rest of the apple don't throw <laughs> it away so yeah we, we became quite obsessed with food that's fair to say what about your mother's side then, Kit? How strong was your Irish identity growing up? It was stronger than the Caribbean identity just because of my mother who was present for us. She was mad, but she was present. <laughs> and also my mother had nine brothers and sisters. So it was a huge Irish side of the family. And where we lived was in the Irish area of Birmingham. So, you know, you could walk four miles and you'd only hear Irish accents. So we were very much Irish children. We didn't even realise that it was strange to be black and Irish for a long time. I must have been 10 or 11 when I realised there wasn't a lot of other Irish people that were black. Um, it is a sort of sector, the immigrant Irish community. Well, you, well, you said you were that sort of age when you did sort of realise that it was unusual to be black and Irish. Was there one particular moment or was that a dawning realisation as you got a bit older and your thoughts on the world developed a bit? Um, it was my grandmother, really, because she didn't like us very much because we were black. But, but we didn't know it was because we were black. You know, we just okay. knew she wasn't, we weren't the favoured children because the favoured children were the white cousins and we just, she just wasn't thrilled with us. She used to call us neither one thing or the other because we were half and half. Um, and then I sort of thought, oh, it's because I'm black. And then, he, then I don't care about it. You know, if, you, if it's a personal thing, she doesn't like my personality, that's one thing. But if she doesn't like me because I'm black, that's fine. Never, you know, didn't, didn't bother me at all. But I can remember going to St Anne's, which was the big Catholic church in our area, and people didn't expect you to be Irish. They thought there was some, you know, some sort of charity case my grandmother had taken along. But presumably then... If your if your grand felt that way about you, I mean, how did she deal with having a daughter who had mixed race children? How how did your mum meeting this man from the West Indies and having children with him? How did that go down with her family? Uh, I'd fair it's fair to say she was absolutely horrified. So she'd left Wexford with her children, with with the ones that were born anyway, to come for a better life. And what you didn't do, or what she didn't expect, is that my mother would seek out the only people that were lower on the wrong than the Irish. Because the Irish were pretty low down the wrong of, you know, um, oppression and poverty in Birmingham. And so my mother thought, my grandmother felt like her daughter had missed an opportunity to better herself by going with a black man. She also, you know, through ignorance, she just really thought my dad was a savage. You know, she she thought he wasn't quite, you know, human. Um, she 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 got to know him. She got to love him, obviously. But while we were growing up, she was scared of him. You know, he's this big hulking black man that she couldn't understand because of his accent, and she was a little bit frightened of him about what he might do next. How did all that impact on you then, as a child? Uh, we just thought they were all mad. Both parents, both grandparents, we never internalised it for a minute. It's like we could stand outside of Black Nana and see how not very nice she was and what her 
game was that she was playing with my mother. You could look at white Nana, Irish Nana, and go, okay, she doesn't like my dad, this is what she thinks. Look at my parents and the war between them and the lack of cohesion and the poor parenting. And because there were five of us, we used to just go, what is with these people? We <laughs> never went, oh, you know, it's not fair for us. We just thought, Phew, I'm going to get to 16 and I'm off. This is a madhouse. It's incredible that you had the strength of character to separate yourself from what was going on at home. But your mum also became a Jehovah's Witness. Now, that doesn't seem like the type of thing that you can just stand away from or not try and internalise in some way. Yeah, that was that was very different. So we were brought up, Jehovah's Witnesses, believe that the end of the world, they did then believe the end of the world was going to come in 1975. I would have been 15 in 75. And if you were bad, you would die. And if you were good, you'd live forever. So obviously I was bad because I'm just a child and I was, you know, used to swear, used to fancy boys, had a first cigarette at 10. So I just thought I was going to die. Um, and my mother was, you know, thought it was great that she was a Jehovah's Witness now and paradise was going to come. We were all going to live forever. But I never expected to live forever. And I thought all my life, I just thought I would die when this Armageddon came. That I didn't stand away from. I didn't stand apart from. I truly believed that was going to happen. Were you resentful of the kind of lives that you saw other kids living then when, when you were kind of faced with that apocalyptic vision in your house? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there is not a more joyless religion than Jehovah's Witnesses. There's no Christmas, no birthdays, no bonfire night, Mother's Day. There's nothing. There's no celebrations. It's a celebration free Zoom. So we never had Christmas ever. So we were poor anyway. We, I mean, not that we'd have had any food, but at least we might have had a bit of tinsel. You'd wake up on your ninth birthday, whisper to your sister, I'm nine. That was it for the day. So, yeah, I was very resentful about not having, not only not having those celebratory days, but three times a week you had to go to the Kingdom Hall, which is like church, mm. and read the Bible. And you couldn't watch the telly. We could never watch Top of the Pops. You couldn't watch anything remotely sexy or interesting. It was all documentary, all the news, all my dad's films. But... Um, yeah, it was very, very oppressive religion. You said earlier on that you had your eyes on being 16 and getting oh, yeah. out of there, basically. Is, is yeah. that how it actually transpired? Oh, God, yeah. I was off. I mean, you had to leave. If you weren't a Jehovah's Witness, my mother required that you leave anyway. And at 16, I wasn't going to be a Jehovah's Witness. So I left home uh, just before my 17th birthday. I think I'd been to college for, um, for about six, nine months then I just left home and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And I still thought I was going to die. So I was 16. The end was going to come in 75. It's now 76. So I'm thinking any day now. So I've got to pack it all in. I'm going to die anyway. And I'm certainly not going to die without knowing <laughs> what that's like. So I did it all. I well, that sounds to. like fun. You know, I was waiting for the end. So I'm just like, let's let's go. Let's do it. What are we going to do? You know, what are we going to have? And then by the time I was 21, I did I overdid the drugs. I did overdid the lifestyle. When you said that you know, you were still waiting for Armageddon even as the clock ticked into 76 or whatever. Do you think that that was both true and not true in your head? You know, that on a conscious level, you were, you were okay, well, 
you know, I still believe this stuff. I, I, you know, I might as well pack in all as much fun as I can have. While at the subconscious level being, this is a reaction to my childhood. And the excuse I'm going to tell myself is that, you know, Armageddon is, is, is the end is nigh. I think you've missed your calling as a psychiatrist there because I've never <laughs> thought about that before. But I think there's, I do think there's some truth in that. Although if you'd have asked me at the time, I definitely did believe the end was going to come. Having said that, I think there is also some truth in the fact that these are the things I've been deprived of all my life and all, all through my childhood. It was no. Whatever you wanted to do was no. Whatever you wanted to feel was bad. And so I could now go out, have the feelings, do the bad stuff, do anything, have Christmas, have birthdays. Um, it, it all was five or six years of excess. And it was, you know, it's just a wild time. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation so far, kid, I have to say. And we've a lot more to come because after the break, we're going to chat about the big impact that the discovery of literature and a love of writing had on your life around this time, as well as sizing up your sporting career, of course. That's all on the way on Second Captain Saturday. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen and Murph chatting today to the brilliant novelist Kit Duvall about what is an absolutely extraordinary life that she's led. We spoke, Kit, in depth about your childhood in Birmingham there before the break. And just considering the career you've ended up in, it may be a surprise to some people that you never mentioned a love of reading. That was something that came later in life, yeah? Yeah, so I hated reading when I was a child because we had to read the Bible, we had to read Jehovah's Witnesses publications, or we had to read Dickens at school. And so I refused to read any kind of a novel. Anytime I could not read, I wouldn't read. We went to the library to keep warm, but I wouldn't read a book. Anyway, when I had my sort of breakdown and decided to stop taking drugs completely, I got a job with the Crown Prosecution Service and I worked for a solicitor um, and I couldn't sleep. So I just he said he'd give me the 10 best books to read. So I read them all and I absolutely loved them. For a, yeah. for a start, I was not in my own head thinking about nonsense that I was thinking about. I was thinking about the story and I'd be so tired, I'd sleep. For the first time in my life, I was sleeping. And sometimes I was getting through a book a day. You know, the weekends, I'd just sit and read a book and it stopped me thinking. It was great. When did writing come into your life, Kit? And how and when did you fall in love with it? Um, I was 45 and I'd adopted a little boy who was very ill and had to give up work for the first time since my 20s. And I painted the kitchen. I went to a mother and baby group once, once. I hated it. <laughs> um, I, you know, did flower arranging. I did everything else. And then I thought, oh, God, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'll try writing. It was next on the list. <laughs> and um, I, I couldn't believe how much I loved it. And I also couldn't believe how bad I was. I thought I'd be quite good. You know, I thought, well, I've read loads of books. So I'll be quite good. I'll write a book. I'll send it to Penguin. They'll put a wrapper on it. They'll put it in the shop. Be a bestseller. I was just, I really thought I'd be able to do it. And I was absolutely rubbish. 
How do you go from a point where you say your writing was no good to coming out with My Name is Leon in 2016, which is an absolutely brilliant read and, you know, won awards and nominated for other awards, all that kind of stuff. How did you actually get good at this thing? Um, you write two books that aren't very good and you send them <laughs> off and everyone tells you how bad you are. Uh, and then you, you start thinking, well, what I did is I read the books that I love and I thought, has he done it? Has she done it? Why am I crying on page 17? What's the technique? So it's like deconstructing something you love. You know, you might do it with a recipe. How have they made that steak? They've done this and they've done that. And then you go home and you try and do it. Um, and I, I also did an MA in creative writing, which was actually rubbish. But it made, it gave me a lot of time to, to think and deconstruct my own work. So, yeah, it, it was trial and error and failure. But if you... You know, I loved books and I had my hero writers and I would just, I wanted to be like them. You said before, you say you wanted to be like them, but did you see many who came from similar backgrounds? Because you said in the past, the truth is, and I heard this more than once, literature is a record of the middle classes for the middle classes. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And certainly the books that I had started to read were the classics, the English classics, um, which are written by men by white men that could afford to spend their days writing and not be in a coal field or a, or a field. Um, so there weren't many people like me, certainly very, very few working class writers that I knew of. And when I, I can remember once Googling um, poor people, you know, um, working class people or poor people in literature, Jane Eyre is who they came up with. Jane Eyre was a governess in a big house that spoke French and played the piano. Jane Eyre would have had her own maid. That's the person I'm interested in, the maid, not the Jane Eyre person, which really annoys me. So I've, you know, all through my life tried to be quite vocal about the fact that working class people need also to have our stories told. It's not to say those stories are bad, they're great, but make some space for the other literature the other stories about normal people. Well, what do you think? What are we missing out on then as, as readers and just in society by not having more writers from this sort of background? Um, part of reading is to see other people's lives. But part of reading is also to see ourselves, our lives on the page. And if we are always reading about other people being the heroes, other people being the heroines, and that people like me from my background or women or black people being the also-rans, you never feel in your life that you're centre stage, that you matter. You're always going to be supporting someone else's stage, a story. It's like when you see a film and, you know, you can see... You, you, I do anyway. You look at the black guy, you're going to die. It's not going to be Tom Cruise that's going to die or, or the, the hero. It's the also-ran. It's the dispensable people. And for me, there are no dispensable people. There should be the that sort of hero and that sort of hero and that and every sort of hero so that we can all especially children see ourselves represented on the page as well as the other stories because all stories are great and valid but let's have as many heroes as possible so why isn't that happening do you think why are these writers not breaking through are they out there is it untapped potential it is untapped potential i mean by the very nature of, of the phrase working class people are working but writing good books starts with having the time to practice the art and to read and if you haven't you're too tired because you've got seven jobs or three jobs and also you don't feel included in the conversations that happen around literature 
maybe you can't go to literary, literary festivals. That can be really expensive. Maybe you're a carer. Maybe you just don't know where to sit or you'd be embarrassed to put your hand up or whatever. There's a lot of things unspoken that exclude and a lot of um, things that are very obvious like time and money that exclude people. You've, you've been proactive about this as you say you've been championing this and you set up a scholarship a few around the time of the release of My Name is Leon and when it was clear that was going to be a success and the first winner I saw you say before was a young mixed race boxer from Birmingham who hid poems in his gloves. Now given yeah. what this show is all about I mean, that, that's, that sounds like gold does to us. <laughs> what, what exactly uh, can you tell us a bit about this guy? Yeah, his, uh, his name is Stephen, and he, he was so shy when he came to the interview. He was one of these quietly confident people, and he wrote, um, you know, so you had to send in a little bit of your writing, his writing was great, and then a little bit about why you, why should you get the scholarship. And he told us this story, you know, he's six foot two, I think, you know, this big black guy who, you know, you would not expect all the stereotype reasons you would not expect he's going to be writing poetry. And um, he said, you know, what made you start? And he said, I just always wanted to do it. But from the background he came from, you do not say you want to write poetry, especially not his poet. And we're not talking rap poetry either from this guy. We're talking beautiful, traditional poetry. And he said he used to write these poems and, you know, he didn't have much money but he did have his boxing gloves and that's the only place he could put them that no one else would get their hands on them because his hands were the only hands that only went in, ever went into the gloves and uh, I said to him you know so what are you going to do if you don't get it he said I'll always write poetry whether I have to hide it or whether it ever gets hmm. read by anyone else I'll always write it and he was just it for me I mean the metaphor is almost too on the nose isn't it like it is it really is and he was obviously a knockout he was, um, and he was really quite a gentle guy, I have to say. You know, you wouldn't think it to see this guy walk down the road, but when you spoke to him, there was, a, you know, he was a poet. A question we ask all our guests on the show is a sporting highlight from your own life, Kit. So what, when we've asked you to think about this, what have you come up with? Um, well, when I was young, I went to a grammar school with my sister so they're like, um, they're schools for the clever kids, but they're not paid for. They're state schools, but they hive off the clever kids and they send them all to grammar schools. And there were two, four black children in the whole school, me and my sister, another girl and a, and a boy. And so because of racism at the time, people assumed that me and my sister were going to be good at sports. Black people can run fast. Obviously, they run fast in the jungle or whatever they think. So um, they put us in for everything. The high jump, the long jump, the discus, the shot put. We were knackered and we didn't eat. So we couldn't, we couldn't do it. We didn't have the oomph, the energy. We were tired. And anyway, we were absolutely rubbish at it. My sister wasn't too bad at the discus. And in the end, it came down to me throwing the javelin. Um, so I was taught to, to throw the javelin, which I wasn't too bad at. Um, anyway, we had a big annual sports day where all the schools play, all the other schools, and it's my turn to throw the javelin and there's four white girls behind me who reek of hot dinners and foreign holidays and they were just laughing at me and I heard one of them say to the other one, no wonder she's good at throwing spears. So I decided to throw that javelin 
like my life depended on it. I mean, I'm not kidding. My arm nearly came out of its socket. I threw it from the bottom of my heart and I won. And it, I don't know if it shut them up. I just felt great. Wow. This, this spear chucker has won. So thank you for that. Wow. I th- think that could be the best sporting well, highlight we've ever we've had. Ever heard. But jeepers, I mean, there's so much in there. Like, you know, going back even to, to the teachers, the PE teacher, whoever it was, who just assumed you're going to be good at sport. Oh, and, yeah. and what you've told us earlier on about the about the lack of nutrition and that you weren't even eating properly. It's, it's oh, there's, there's, there's a lot going on with that. Absolutely. It was, you know, school wasn't great. We were very, very clever. But we, you know, we couldn't sing any of the songs at school because we were Jehovah's Witnesses. So we stuck out from that. It was a very, very hard time at school. And then you had these two sports teachers um, who were just like, you will run the 800 metres. And I'd be like, I can't, no, you, you'll be good at it. And I said, I really can't do it. And it was ghastly, uh, which is why I think I ended up with the javelin, because at least I didn't have to run, because I couldn't run. Were you even interested in it? Did you, did you, were you interested? Did you want to do the sport at all? Not if you had just been at it, all. No, not a bit. I was thin. I was really thin. I was very underweight and I was cold. And I wasn't very good, you know. I think I probably had good technique, but, I, you know, I had snappable arms. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't pretty. That comment from that other, those girls, was that extreme or was that the kind of thing you would hear quite a bit? Uh, about spear chucking, I'd never heard that before. But I can remember uh, a boy, my, my best friend at school was a blonde girl, and I remember this boy coming up to her and said, why'd you go around with her? Why'd you go around with the black girl? I mean, I won't say the N-word, but that was very, very common. You mm-hmm. know, we'd get called that all the time. Gollywog. So, loads of teachers assumed that we weren't clever. They, they were shocked when we were clever children. But the first day of school, uh, in the secondary school, the teacher, as a sort of icebreaker, they didn't call it that then, went round the class and said, right, everybody tell us what you had for dinner last night. Now, we didn't have dinner last night and I was already dreading her getting to me because I didn't know what to say. But when she got to me, she made this motion of putting the food in the mouth and said, what did you eat yesterday? Because she thought we couldn't understand English. So it was just routine, routine racism that we just grew up with. You also had this added wrinkle that... As you said earlier, people thought you were Irish originally. And then I I know reading your memoir that you would get to job interviews in the early days and they would think they were speaking to a white Irish person and they would see you and they would hear about your background and and suddenly the door was closed. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So I'd go for an interview when I was 16 or 17 and, um, you know, Mandy O'Loughlin, that was my name. My surname's an Irish surname. Uh, she'd apply for the job. And then the black girl turns up and they go, oh. Uh, and they didn't quite know how to manage it. Either the job had gone or they just didn't like, you know, they weren't going to em- employ the black girl. That was mm. just a routine thing. And, of course, people would talk about Irish people in front of me. The, pro- the bombings are going on all over England, all through my childhood. And people would talk about... Dirty Irish, Irish terrorists all the time. Uh, never assuming I was Irish, actually. So I used to hear what English people really thought of Irish people, which was not pretty. And I think people would be glad to hear that despite all the challenges your Irish identity threw up during those childhood years, you're now 
an Irish citizen. So those negative experiences are something you're you're at peace with. Completely. It's, um, I've never. I, I mean, I feel so Irish all through my childhood. I felt like I was an Irish person. I didn't feel particularly like a Brummie. It was so important for me to get my Irish passport and my Irish citizenship so that I could feel I belong. And I feel I do belong when I go home, as I call it. You know, if I go home to Ireland, it's like, yeah, I've landed. This is this is for me. That's lovely to hear, Kit. Can, listen, can we go back to sport for a second? Because you've described how this was something that was forced on you in a really horrible way at school but I believe your relationship with it now is far more positive these days partly because of the huge role it's played in your son's life yes my son even he would admit he's not that bright but he loves cars and he loves sport so when he was at school because he was coming basically last in all the subjects I just accept sport and he was like you know god of sport I just thought, right, you're going to do everything and you're going to do it well. So we got him a golf pro. He did taekwondo. He did tennis. He did diving. He did squash. Um, Everything. I mean, name a sport. He's done it. He's tried (laughs) it. And he'd get really good at it. Then he's on board. And so we go to the next one and the next one. And the only way I got him to do it was if I did it. So I had to do all those sports. And I was absolute rubbish, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I've, I think it's very, very important. And for all those children that do struggle at school, what really makes me laugh about school is they measure... For, for children like my son with severe dyslexia, they measure what he's bad at and they don't measure what he's good at. And that irritates me. I feel it's like measure the things he's good at as well. Like, you know, the children that can't play sport, they get a note from their mum, oh, little Johnny can't... You know, little Johnny who is useless can't play football, so he's going to sit it out. And I'll be like, can Luke sit out maths then? Do you know what I mean? I used to just really irritate me. So I made, I'm a bit of a rock one, as you can tell. So I made it my <laughs> business that my son, if he's going to be good at something, he's going to be very good. And he is still a fantastic sportsman. We've got this far, Kit, without asking you about Rafa Nadal. What's going on I'm here? You're a <laughs> Nadal I mean, super fan. <laughs> I am a super fan, super, super, super fan. So I've seen him probably three or four times and when he was playing in uh, I think it was Paris anyway I queued up with the young you know the young 17 year olds I'm about 50 at the time just to see him come down the tunnel with his kit so he comes down the tunnel with with his kit I don't know what happened to me I really don't I'm ashamed I've got one of those enormous tennis balls and I start jumping up and down (laughs) The, the young girls have got it together. They can contain themselves. <laughs> I can't. And he looks at me. My friend who speaks French, uh, who speaks Spanish, said, would you sign our balls? He signs the ball. I was nearly crying. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. You know, lost it like an idiot. I've never been so ashamed of myself. And yet that ball has got pride of place on my bookshelf. I... I I worship it. Oh, when I'm looking at a photograph that you, you kindly sent us on, my <laughs> word, you look like a happy bunny there. That is. I was so happy. I was so happy. It was, yeah. Well, what about Serena in the women's game? She's been the big story this week. Just played her final ever US Open match last night. Are you into Serena? Yeah. She's incredible. I mean, what a strong woman. You know, she's not a delicate, you know, beautiful. Lots of lots of the, the women players are completely beautiful and delicate. But you've got this machine, this beautiful, raw, energetic, unapologetically aggressive player 
I think she's absolutely fantastic. She's done a lot for tennis and a lot for black people coming into sport. Kit, I gotta say, you put Murph under serious pressure for points. There's a lot of good stuff happening here, I think. Kieran, could you please do the <laughs> honours and rank this sporting life of Kit Duval? You don't understand, I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Kit, we've uh, we've had such a wonderful time talking to you this afternoon, but I need you to realise that all of that positivity counts for absolutely nothing <laughs> because I'm here to do a job and my job is to assess your all-time sporting highlight, pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you can be crowned our top non-sports person sports person for 2022. Your school's javelin victory is about as badass a tale as has ever been told on this show. Let's face it. I'm struggling badly to think of a better sporting highlight than that. And I include Gabby Logan actually competing in the actual Commonwealth Games in that. So, to be honest, that dignity under pressure, that courage under fire, and that raw natural sporting ability puts me in mind of the great West Indian cricketer Michael Holding, whose nickname was Whispering Death, so-called because he ran (laughs) so quietly and yet so devastatingly into bowl. Don't mess with Whispering Death and do not mess with Kit. So you get bonus points for your dad's rich sporting pedigree, extra bonus points for your sports ecumenism with your son, possibly some points get deducted for getting Rafa Nadal to sign your novelty oversized tennis ball. (laughs) Yeah. But honestly, it is very hard to see any reason to be downbeat here. I mean, I don't even know why I'm hesitating. It's quite clear what we've heard here today. You get 86 points. You are our new season leader, Kit Duvall. This has been your sporting life. Uh, Thank say you. say goodbye to Fiona Shaw and Nick Hornby in the mall in the, <laughs> the in your rear view them. mirror. Oh. They're they're currently eating Bye. your dust. Murph, that's <laughs> got to be a round of applause for Kit Duval. What a guest, Kit! Thank you so much, and well done on that great honour you've just received. Thank you. I'm very touched.
Yes, that's Silly Games by Janet Kay, which reached number two in the summer of 1979 in the charts in the UK. But many of you will be familiar with it from the excellent film Lovers Rock by the British filmmaker Steve McQueen. It came out a couple of years ago, based around a reggae house party of young people of first and second generation West Indian background in London in 1980. So it seems an appropriate choice after speaking to our incredible guest this afternoon who goes straight in at number one on the leaderboard. Murph, I have to say, I knew by the look in your eyes when she gave us that sporting highlight that Kit Deval <laughs> was our new leader. The rest was a mere formality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing's beaten that, right? No. As we've already said, that might be the best sporting highlight we've ever heard. Hope you enjoyed the music on today's show as well, by the way. Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder earlier. You're a fan, Kieran. I am a massive Stevie Wonder fan and a massive Inner Visions fan. And just the, that whole arc of Stevie Wonder's career, he was Motown's biggest kid sensation in the 1960s. Then he decides on his 21st birthday, he wants to rip it up and start again. Releases Where I'm Coming From, Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, and Fulfillingness's first finale in the space of three years. Takes a, <laughs> right. takes a year off in 1975. And then released his masterpiece, Songs in the Key of Life, in 1976. So the most extraordinarily productive four or five years in the history of popular music. You've got to take that year off, though, just to recharge after, what, five albums in three years? This was such an unbelievable achievement. It was recognised as such, even as he was in the middle of it, that Paul Simon accepted the Grammy for 1975's Album of the Year, still crazy after all these years, by saying... I want to thank Phil Ramon, who co-produced this with me, and Art Garfunkel, who sang with me on My Little Town. And most of all, I'd like to thank Stevie Wonder, who didn't make an album this year. And that's Paul Simon that's saying that, which is pretty ridiculous. (laughs) All right, very good. Well, the good news for Kit Duvall is there's only one more guest who can take the title from her. Our last episode of the current series is next Saturday. Our apologies to Fiona Shaw, who's probably at her musical evening in her mum's house in Montanati around about now, Murph. You've ruined the night, but besides that... Singing a dirge... That's it. Check us out in the meantime, Monday to Friday, secondcaptains.com. This has been a Second Captains production for RTE. Killian Down produced the show. Thank you to Johnny Lanagan and Elizabeth Largy in RTE. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Doc on One coming right up on RTE Radio 1. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening. We'll chat to you next week. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.